Thanks very much, uh, John. And it's nice to be with you. We've, um, my wife Lois and uh, myself were old friends of Fee and Mark. Uh, old in both senses of the word, actually. I retired just over a year ago. And um, we've known Fee since 1989, and Mark since the time around they got married. So, uh, so it's, we've been here a couple of times before, so it's uh, nice to be with you. Um, I'm a retired Baptist minister. Um, Baptists are dwindling these days, you might be uh, sad to hear, but uh, I hear church life here is going well. Um, but it's always slightly discouraging when you don't see a good congregation, and apparently a bishop on one occasion went and preached in one of the parishes uh, that he was in charge of, and there were only three people in the congregation. He was a bit miffed about this, and after the service uh, ended, he said uh, to the vicar, he said, did you not tell them that I was coming? And the vicar said, no, I forgot to, but word seems to have got round. <laughs> so anyway, I hope it won't be that bad for you. I'm going to read... Um, some verses from Exodus chapter 17, beginning to read at verse 8, if you want to follow this. Uh, Exodus 17 and verse 8. And this is a period between when the people of Israel had been delivered from Egypt and they were on their way to the Promised Land, but more specifically on their way to Mount Sinai before they received uh, the Ten Commandments. And uh, they... Uh, meet in battle with a group called the Amalekites. And um, this is what it says. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. So here's a question for you. What's the best age to be? The best age. What age would you actually like to be if you had a choice? Four-year-old was once asked that question, oh, well, not that question, but four-year-old was asked, what do you want to be um, uh, when you grow up? And the four-year-old said, bigger. Um, if there's a best stage in life, I would have imagined it would be in your early 20s, gone to those annoying teenage spots, hopefully, and your body is firm and healthy, and the responsibilities that come with marriage and a family are still to come. Fitness comes easily, clothes fit easily, and half the population want you to think they're older than they are, while the other half are pumping themselves with Botox and anti-aging cream to look younger. But somewhere in the middle is that optimum age, and I would have guessed it would be somewhere in the 20s. 
Now, I wonder why Jesus uh, said that thing that he said about children. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Almost as though that's the ideal age, being a child. Is it because children are nicer than adults? Well, I used to think so before I had children of my own and then discovered that uh, we all have a bad side, don't we? Oh, we turn it on on Sunday and our children were quite good at behaving in company and people would say, what lovely children you have. And then, of course, you get home and uh, it's a different story. I like the story about the, the minister who... Uh, When he started uh, being a minister, he decided to do a a sermon on bringing up children. And so he called it Six Rules for Bringing Up Children. And uh, later he got married and um, had children. And uh, reflecting on that, he came to a different church and he preached a sermon again. And this time it was Six Ideas uh, for Bringing Up Children. Later in life, when he'd seen them grow up and go through their teenage years, etc., He did it again in his third church. Six thoughts for bringing up children, which you may or may not find helpful. There's that kind of sense, isn't there, about about kids. And, and, And it certainly isn't. Jesus isn't saying it's good to be like a child because children have a better grasp of things. You don't get the, you do get the occasional child prodigy, but on the whole, you don't come across five year old doctors or mechanics, do you? They still have a lot to learn. Now, I think what people see in Jesus' words that's good about children is this idea of dependence. Now, I grew up with the idea that we were supposed to move from dependence to independence. But, of course, that's wrong, isn't it? When you think about it, we're always dependent. Uh, If you think about life, you never become independent. Goodness knows how you would get through life. Um, managing phones and laptops and stuff these days, I have no idea uh, how they work. I mean, I can press the buttons and I can make a call and I can send a WhatsApp, but if you take the thing apart, I have not got the slightest idea how it works. I was talking to John before the service. He's a plasterer. I would never attempt plastering because I know that it's actually a very technical, very skilled job. And lots of you have been in particular jobs where you've worked all your life and, and you learn your trade and you become good at it. So many ways that we, uh, that we are dependent on other people uh, all the time. And we remain dependent both as human beings but also as Christians And I just want to explore that idea this morning through this particular story. Now, Moses was at the far end of the age scale. He was in his 80s, according to the book of Acts. He was too old to be fighting battles by this time. And getting old can be very difficult, can't it? Uh, I'm in my 60s. Well, once you're in your 50s and you're looking for a new job, it's difficult to get one, isn't it? And then later on, uh, in your 50s, your your muscles start to sag. You lose that kind of muscle tone. It used to be easy, but then you begin to lose it. And then your memory starts playing up, and your children start treating you like a child. And probably that was what Jesus was getting at, that sense of weakness, of inadequacy, of being 
past your use-by date. God's not after people with huge egos, people who think they're better than everybody else, people who think they're competent and capable. He's after people who know their limitations, who aren't afraid to ask for help, and who readily turn to him. It's what one person called spirituality with a limp. So, Egypt was in the past. Uh, there had been the ten plagues and the people had come out successfully crossing the Red Sea and the people of Israel were now on their way uh, to the mountain to receive the commandments. And standing in their way were these Amalekites. And the, the Amalekites pop up from time to time in the Old Testament. The Bible tends to give them a pretty bad press. Now I can't explore that this morning. It would be an interesting study to go into that. And it's worth noting that the Bible does contain a lot of fighting. You've probably noticed that, particularly in the Old Testament. So that Sunday school syllabuses generally tend to avoid all those passages. When I grew up, David killing Goliath was a great story, and Samson pulling down a building and killing 3,000 people was a great story, but it's not anymore. And the more you kind of think about it, it does raise questions for you. But here we are with this intriguing account of an extraordinary battle, and that's why I want to linger with it. Who takes the credit for the victory? So, in the valley, fighting the battle was Joshua, Moses' successor to be. No doubt he was a great general, he was a hands-on leader who brought a tactical brain to the job. And as the day wore on, Israel's fortunes ebbed and flowed One minute they were on top, one minute they were under the cosh. But eventually they were triumphant. And in the post-battle celebrations, stories probably flowed of acts of military prowess and courage. And Joshua could take great credit for that himself. Without Joshua and his army, there would have been no victory. But what Joshua and his men didn't see was what was happening at the top of the hill. Because every time Moses raised his rod, Israel prevailed in the battle, and every time he lowered it, the Amalekites prevailed. Most peculiar story. In other words, without Moses and his hands in held aloft, there would have been no victory for Joshua down below. Now I've often wondered what uh, the writer of Exodus 17 might have wanted God's people to learn from this story. I think what there is in the story is this tension between human effort and divine help. A real question about who pulls the strings. And I don't think you, you... You need to be careful how you interpret this. I don't think this is a call for all younger people to be activists like Joshua and all older people to be praying for God's work like Moses. It's not that simple. But it is a call for all of us to recognize that there is work to do, but that God is active in ways that we can't always see. You go back to the book of Genesis, you see the story of Joseph. And Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and he finishes up in Egypt uh, as a slave. And then he gets in more trouble and he finishes up in prison. And if you're familiar with the story, you'll know that while he's in prison, two men 
uh, are in prison, both of whom have dreams. And they come to Joseph and say, we've had these disturbing dreams. Can you interpret them for us? And Joseph has been through his own dreams in the earlier part of his life where it doesn't feel like they've come to fruition. And so, nonetheless, he interprets the dreams for the two men. And it transpires in such a way, and you need to know the story to understand what I'm saying here, that actually that leads to Joseph becoming, uh, coming out of prison and gradually being promoted to a position of great power in the land. And the whole point of the story is to say that, that Joseph has trusted God. He's got on with the job that he has to do. And God's hand has been at work in invisible ways, ways that he couldn't actually perceive. This sense of not being aware of something that's going on. Now, I did become aware of it um, years ago when I was in college. Took a youth weekend um, back when I was in my 20s for a church in West Wickham, in South London, and we took a coach to the place where the weekend was taking place. And I was chatting to some of the leaders on the way there, and they were just very sort of downhearted about the state of the youth work in the church, and just praying that this would be a weekend when God um, would touch their lives. And I was there with a couple of colleagues from, from college, and on the Saturday morning, uh, we had a session, and then we broke for coffee, and then we had another session together. And I'd written a little talk about the Holy Spirit, and it was a bit bodged and, and knocked up. And it was the strangest thing that's, that's ever happened, because I was given that talk, and you know how it is when people are distracted, you know, they don't have phones in those days, so they couldn't look at their phones, but they're looking around, and they're not quite paying attention. And then it was as though suddenly this atmosphere kind of dropped in the place and suddenly everybody was fixated on what I was saying and something happened in that weekend uh, where people's lives uh, were absolutely transformed it was a peculiar peculiar experience where suddenly at about 11 o'clock on the Saturday morning the whole atmosphere changed as though God's presence had come down in a special way Now, I held on to that sermon. I thought, this is good, good stuff, because I didn't kind of perceive what was going on at the time. And uh, I did another youth weekend about three months later, and and I pulled that one out of my pocket and thought, this is a life changer, and uh, proceeded to say it, and it didn't work. Because, and as I reflect on it, because God was doing his own thing, but it was at one of those moments where I could see my inability to make things happen, but his ability to do something. There's a story told about the, the Welsh revival back in 1904-1905. Uh, God was doing amazing things in Wales, and there's a story there about one particular Welsh pastor who'd been plying his trade for 20 or 30 years, and he said uh, he kept a diary, and he, he, he said one night, I went to bed feeling like a lamb, And the next morning, I woke up feeling like a lion. And he went back to his job preaching and suddenly with a power that he had never known before. Surrounding villages invited him to go and preach. Then many people came to Christ as a result of his ministry. It went on for six months. And then one night, he went to bed feeling like a lion. And he got up the next morning feeling like a lamb again. 
You'd have thought the whole thing would carry on for the rest of his life, wouldn't you? But no, actually, it was just for a time. Because maybe God wanted to say, look, it's not you that's making this happen. Actually, I'm at work out there. So reflect on that uh, within your church life. You've got many people here who work hard. They say there's a 2080 uh, rule in life. 2080 applies in all sorts of different ways. Apparently, we wear 20% of our clothes 80% of the time. In John's case, it's 10% of his clothes 90% of the time. But, uh, but that's the general rule. And often there are, there are a lot of people who kind of work very hard, or a few people that work very hard. And, uh, and I want to wish you well, but also to remember that God will be at work in hidden ways. Um, in the life of this church. Let me come to Aaron and her, the other two characters in the story. Lots has been written about their significance. Aaron, head of religious life, uh, her of the civil service, but the text is not explicit about the reason for them actually being there on the day. And my simple reading is that they were there to help Moses. When his arms grew weary, they could have criticized him, but instead they helped him. You can imagine the, the scene on the top, you know, Moses holding his arms and then gradually they get weak and they come down and then the battle turns in Amalek's favour and Aaron and Hur can see what's happening there and at that point they could have just said, come on Moses, come on, you're the great leader, get your arms up, get your arms up. But instead they quietly got either side of him, sat him down on a rock and pushed his arms up and held them there so that the battle could be won. It's not easy, it's not hard to see the, the significance of that, is it? Actually, encouragement uh, goes a great way. Uh, and over the years, I was a Baptist minister for 40 years before I retired. Over the years, I've experienced both sides of that, encouragement and discouragement. I can remember one Friday evening, um, as we were settling down to watch a film or something on television in the early days of, of ministry, uh, a letter coming through the door from one of the members having a real go at me for the things that she didn't like about my ministry and how depressing that was for a Friday evening. I can remember she then went on to do something that she shouldn't have done and I went round to address it with her and she completely lost the plot with me and, and couldn't take the fact that I was criticising her and yet... She was happy to throw that at me. Very easy uh, to pull people down. Uh, ten years ago, we started a building project at the church that I was at. There was a whole section of the church that was very run down, and we thought about that, about how actually when we were not using the building, it could be brought to such a condition that it could be used by other groups, and that could then generate income which could be put into ministry. And so that was the vision, but not everybody shared it. And when the building work started, there were no shortage of people who actually came and criticised it and didn't like this and didn't like that and thought the whole thing was a waste of money. But then it worked. In fact, worked better than we had actually hoped, and it did generate money. And I remember we had a church meeting on one occasion. It was just after the uh, Indonesian earthquake of, uh, or tsunami of four years ago. And um, we, uh, as deacons, we were allowed to give up to £2,000 away 
uh, without referring to the church. But we thought it was such a bad situation in Indonesia that we might want to give more. So we went to the members and said, what do you feel about this? And one of the people who had been so critical about the building, she said, would it be possible to give 5,000? And I said, yeah, we could do that. And what I wanted to say, what I really wanted to say was, but the only reason we can give 5,000 is because we've been renting this place out to different groups because we did it up in the first place and it's generated the income so that you can make that decision. But I didn't say it. Um, And clearly I still wish I had actually said it. Having people around that actually say positive things encourage you. You know, it might do the simplest thing that you do. I I was chatting to John before the service, and he said, do you get nervous about these things? And uh, and he was saying, you know, I'm I'm feeling nervous this morning. Just words of encouragement. They're saying, you're doing all right, mate. You did a good job there, which you did. Um, You know, those are the things that just pick you up Thanks for all the hard work that you're doing with that. And just making that comment. There's there's a thing that we call the sin of omission. And sometimes we omit to encourage people. It's not that we do bad things, but we omit to do good things. And one of the good things is actually just to pick up and encourage people uh, in what they're doing. So that's what I pick up from this passage. Something about the hidden work of God that we need to recognize, and uh, the fact that we need to be supporting those who are working in our name. There was another hill, of course, uh, another hill a bit like Moses with his arms uh, raised, and yet on that particular hill, uh, the man was hanging with his arms outstretched. Jesus had been taken and crucified, and there was something that probably to those who were looking on was something really quite ordinary. It was quite commonplace to see a Roman crucifixion. But there in the hidden workings of God was something happening that was going to transform the world, that was going to bring forgiveness and hope and was going to be life-changing. This is what the cross of Christ is all about. And on that hill, as we look at it, Sunday by Sunday, we see the transforming power of God. In a world which is characterized so much by power and oppression, you look at Jesus and you find sacrifice and service and forgiveness and love. And we come this morning to celebrate that. And we're going to, in a moment, come to communion. I'm just going to lead us in prayer First of all, and then uh, as I've done that, perhaps those who are going to be serving would like to uh, join me at the front. But let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, not just here in church, but in our lives, in our work situations, where we'll be tomorrow, uh, the people that we'll be with. We thank you that everything is not down to us, but we thank you that in the work of your kingdom, you're at work in all sorts of hidden ways. And this morning, we want to pray for the increasing perception of that fact, an increasing understanding that we are dependent on your power 
and your input into our lives. We want to pray that we may be people who bring transformation into the lives of other people. And we pray that you will assist us in that quest. Help us, Lord, to be people who are always positive about your work, positive about others, always eager to say something which will build up and encourage. And I pray today for your blessing on the work here at Haywards Heath as they look for a new minister and as they continue the work, as they open up warm spaces here in the, in the coming weeks. do want to pray that during this time of difficult difficulty for all sorts of people across our nation, that this church may be an agent of real blessing in the days ahead. So Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.